0: I almost went to Greece this summer. It would have been for me a dream come true. I was invited to go on a trip that had been in the planning or the making for over a year and a half, almost two years. My mother and father-in-law and Deidre's sister, my sister-in-law, were all scheduled to go to Greece this last May, and two years ago they invited Deidre and I to go along with them. And I would have loved to have gone along, and if I had about $2,000 laying around my house, I would have gone to Greece. It would have been for me a dream come true. Now, just to be clear, it's going to Greece that is the dream come true, not making a trip with my (laughs) in-laws. And you say, Jim, would you really go on a trip like that with your in-laws? And the answer to that question is, I would go on a trip like that with Charles Manson if I could just get to Greece. Not that I could compare my mother and father-in-law to Charles Manson because they don't look anything like him. But I would love to go to Greece. Now to be honest with you, Greece, Greek culture, Greek architecture, Greek art, Greek mythology has been something that has always sort of fascinated me a little bit. I loved reading about it in school. I still enjoy reading about it. Greek history, all of that philosophy, all of that stuff kind of has a, a place that's sort of near and dear to my heart. But to be honest with you, if the Apostle Paul had never set foot in Greece, I don't know that I would have any desire to either. I would actually like to go to that whole region around the Aegean Sea, to Greece and to what is today modern-day Turkey. Because modern-day Turkey has all of those cities from the first missionary journey. Do you remember them? Pisidian, Antioch, and Lystra, and Iconium, and Derby, and even Ephesus. And Greece would have Thessalonica, and Berea, and Corinth, and Athens, and all of those places where the Apostle Paul visited on his second missionary journey. And being able to be there where Paul was... And to see at least the ruins of what Paul saw would make it, for me, just come to life. It would have so much vividness and so much color to be able to stand where Paul stood and to see what Paul saw, the landscape and the environment and the people. And I think it would just be phenomenal. But if Paul had never gone to Greece, I probably could do without going to Greece. There's a lot of places in the world that I would kind of like to to go but they're not a dream come true for me but Greece certainly would be in acts chapter 17 the apostle paul is in greece he is in athens specifically in paul's day going from berea to athens meant moving from macedonia to achaia today you would go from berea to athens and you'd still be in greece in paul's day it meant changing provinces and do you remember what it was that drove paul to athens he didn't go there with his in-laws The Apostle Paul didn't even go there with his ministry team. He left Silas and Timothy back in Berea because those Jews came down from Thessalonica and stirred up the crowds. And so some believers took Paul and they said, we're going to escort you out. And they took him to the sea and as far away as as Athens. And there is where we pick it up with Paul in Athens in Acts chapter 17. Now Acts chapter 17, the end of it, the last half of it, is one of the most fascinating chapters in all of the book of Acts. I think. That's my personal opinion. Acts chapter 17 has a sermon that the Apostle Paul delivered that is his best known sermon. As we went through his sermon in Acts chapter 13, there was probably not a lot of verses that you are familiar with or that you had heard people quote or reference or read, but Acts chapter 17 is not like this. Paul's preaching before the Areopagus, the the court setting in Athens is one of the most memorable, one of the most vivid, one of the most incredible and intriguing passages in all of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Before we look at the details, which we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks, I want you to notice sort of the big picture perspective of Acts 17. Beginning in 16, all the way through the end of verse 21, is sort of Luke's introduction to his message, where Luke is telling us how it is that Paul got to stand before the Areopagus on Mars Hill and deliver this sermon. He was in the marketplace. He was in the synagogue reasoning with the Jews and debating the philosophers, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers in Athens. And that earned him a standing. It earned him an opportunity before the Areopagus. Verse 22 through verse 31 is Paul's message to the Areopagus. And then verses 32 through 34, is sort of the results of that message and the follow-up for it. Now, it's going to take us longer than I had thought to go through Acts 17, and, and here's why. I had originally planned on doing this in three Sundays, but Acts 17 is so full of rich spiritual truth that, to be honest with you, I don't want to shortchange me and I don't want to shortchange you. Acts chapter 17 is incredibly relevant to us for this reason. You and I live in modern-day Athens. You and I live in modern-day Athens. Culturally speaking, intellectually speaking, philosophically speaking, worldview thinking, uh, speaking, we live in modern-day Athens. We no longer live in a Christian nation that is, whose morals and whose law and whose philosophy and whose worldview is informed by a Judeo-Christian perspective. No longer. We are in a post-Christian nation. We live amongst people who are Epicureans. We live amongst Stoics. We live amongst people who think that technology is our God and that wisdom and philosophy and intellectualism reign supreme. Friends, we live amongst agnostics and atheists and evolutionists and philosophers. And so if you have ever asked yourself, how would the Apostle Paul reach American culture? What would the Apostle Paul say if he were on the campus of a university in our day, in our country? How would the Apostle Paul reach my agnostic coworker or my evolutionary school teacher? The answer is in Acts chapter 17. Because in Acts chapter 17, we see the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel to your agnostic brother-in-law, to your atheistic employer, to your evolutionary school teacher and to that annoying neighbor who lives just across the fence who has had one too many philosophy classes in college and thinks that he doesn't need Christianity and he doesn't need Christ because he's got it all up here intellectually figured out how he can do without God. How would the Apostle Paul reach our culture? All of that is in Acts chapter 17. So join with me in verse 16 as we read. We'll look at verse 16 and 17 and then we'll start to look at some of the details. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Now, Paul is waiting, do you remember, because the escorts brought him down alone to Athens. And he is there alone, without his ministry team. All of the ministry in the book of Acts is a team ministry. It's always Paul with somebody else. There's people with him. And he ministers as a team with others. But in Athens, he's all alone. And he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him because he has sent word back with his escorts to Berea, as soon as possible, have them join me at Athens. And so Paul is making his way throughout the marketplace and he is sort of buying his time, waiting for Silas and Timothy to show up from Berea and to arrive in Athens. And Luke says, as he was doing that, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. Athens was quite a bit different from some of the other cities that the Apostle Paul had visited. It's a small city, about 10,000 people. Compare that to Thessalonica, population of 250,000 people. Athens is small. It's not a commercial center. It's not a political center. It's not a commercial or a political powerhouse like Corinth was. The commercial city, the political city in that district, in that region, was Corinth, not Athens. Athens is not known for its political clout or its commercial clout, but its cultural clout. Athens had a history, and it was a noble history. In the 4th and 5th century B.C., Athens was home to the golden age of philosophy, of science, of rhetoric, of discovery, of oratory, of learning. Athens was, in Paul's day... Home to the world's most famous university. Athens was known as sort of an intellectual metropolis, if you will. If you were anybody in the world of philosophy or intellectualism, you went to Athens. That's where all of the learning was. And Athens in Paul's day still had some of that intellectual and philosophical clout. Athens was a, a city that was home to Aristotle, to Plato, to Socrates, to Epicurus, to Zeno, all of those philosophers made their home in Athens. And they prided themselves on being philosophically astute. These, this is where human wisdom reigns supreme. Look at verse 21. With a hint of sarcasm, Luke describes what was a typical university city in their day. All the Athenians... And the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Is the sarcasm there? They had nothing better to do than to stand around and pontificate about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. And all they wanted to do with their time was to be intellectually stimulated. And people would come to Athens and you had to wonder, who's working and supporting this economy? All these people do is stand around and talk all day long. And if you had a new idea, everybody wanted to hear it. Come on down to the marketplace and tell us your idea. And then they would stand around for hours and debate that idea. They lived to tell or to hear something new. All of the philosophers gathered in Athens, home of the world's most famous university, and with its intellectual clout, they attracted people from all over the world. Any intellectual, any scholar, any philosopher, anybody who was interested in that realm, They went to Athens. And that's where you were at. And they lived to hear and tell something new. When the Apostle Paul came to Athens, imagine what he saw. What does Luke say that he saw? Luke says he saw a city full of idols. Now, as Paul approached Athens, the first thing he would have been able to see was the Acropolis. The Acropolis was this sort of raised hill about 200 feet above everything else. And it was sort of fenced in or gated in with this wall around the Acropolis. And inside the Acropolis on this hilltop was the temple to Athena. Inside the Acropolis on this hilltop was the Parthenon, which is on the front of your bulletin. You've seen pictures of the Parthenon. That sits up on top of the Acropolis. Inside the Parthenon was a statue to of Athena. And her glimmering spear she held high. And it was said that you could see the glimmering spear of Athena from 40 miles away. Before Paul ever got to Athens, he would see that hill, this monument of architecture and science and learning and structure and sculpture and art, all of its glory. And you can walk into the Acropolis and see the Parthenon there, 238 feet long, 111 feet wide, 46 columns around the outside, each column being 34 feet high, massive structure, Engravings and carvings and writings and gods all over the place inside of the Parthenon. And then there was the marketplace, the Agora. And inside of these little colonnades, inside of these little porticos would hang all of these pictures and there would be idols there and sculptures and statues. And just the marketplace itself, friends, was a monument to human creativity, art, philosophy, science, ingenuity. Marvelous. Then there was that massive outside theater, to Dionysus. Huge theater carved into the side of the hill next to the Acropolis where they would put on plays and they would entertain people. What a monument to art and creativity and philosophy. And as the Apostle Paul walked into Athens, I think he could have been impressed by all of that. He could have been awed by all of that. But if the Apostle Paul was awed by any of that, it was short-lived because Luke says as the apostle Paul was in Athens it wasn't the architecture that inspired him it wasn't the art that he noticed it wasn't the rhetoric that he liked it wasn't any of those things that caught his attention what caught Paul's focus and what caught Paul's attention was this he was observing the city full of idols interesting word that Luke uses it's a word that is used nowhere else in the New Testament translated full of idols Nowhere else is it used in the New Testament. And listen to this. As far as we know, it's used in no other Greek literature that we've ever found. This is the only occurrence of this word that we know about. It is almost as if Luke has coined a special term to describe the type and level of idolatry that was present in the city of Athens. It is a word that literally means under idols. Swamped with idols. We could translate it... He saw the city flooded with idols, smothered, burdened down. There were idols everywhere. In fact, a similar word is used of a forest and is translated in other sources, other Greek manuscripts, as um, rich in trees. Kind of like you walk into a forest and what do you you have above you? The canopy of the trees, right? That's kind of the type of word that Luke uses to describe the idolatry. You walked into Athens and immediately you felt like you were just under... Idols, smothered in idols. The entrance to the marketplace, the Agora in Athens, before you could get into the marketplace, you had to walk through this this series, dozens and dozens and dozens of these square columns that were tall, and on top of each column was an image of Hermes, his head. Before you could even get to the Agora, the marketplace, you had to walk through a veritable forest of idols, like a bunch of idol trees. Maybe that's what Luke has in mind. The Apostle Paul saw a city that was full of idols. One ancient writer said that Athens was one great idol, one great sacrifice to the gods. Even the city name, Athena or Athens, is named after Athena, the god, the Greek god, Athena. The Areopagus, their high court, was named after the hill of Ares. Ares was the god of war, or Mars was his Latin name. And so we call it Mars Hill or Ares Hill. The Areopagus was the high court that met on the hill and they named their high court after the hill whose god that hill belonged to. Full of idols. One ancient writer said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. Another ancient writer said that it was uh, Athens had more gods in it than all of the rest of Greece. Any horizontal spot that they could put an idol, they put one there. As long as the idol didn't fall off or fall over, if it was horizontal, if it was level, it got an idol. Smothered in idols. Neptune, Diana, Mercury, Venus, Mars. The whole pantheon of gods is in Athens. Friends, this is idolatry like you and I cannot even possibly imagine. Every one of them present. Oh, and they had their bases covered. Verse 23 says, Paul I noticed you have an altar to the unknown God. And an idol for every God they could think of. And just in case they missed one, we'll put an altar up to the unknown God. we got our bases covered. can't even fathom that kind of idolatry, can you? But as Paul was in the city, and he saw all of these idols, a city that was under idolatry, Luke says he was provoked. Interesting word. Paroxuno, the word from which we get our word paroxysm, a violent seizure type of provoking. It means to be infuriated, to be angry. Luke uses it to describe the quote-unquote sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Do you remember that? There was such a sharp disagreement, a paroxysm between them, that they parted ways and they went their separate ways, never to minister with, uh, with each other again. That's the word that is used here. Unless you think that the Apostle Paul had a fit of rage, some violent bursting of his temper, and and some violent shouting match with somebody, that's not the idea that Luke is communicating. What Luke is describing here is this settled stirring of his spirit. When Paul is grieved, he is vexed, he is angry, he is infuriated over this. You say, Paul... Are you just a bitter, angry, resentful individual who cannot take care of your wrath? Is that what Luke is describing? That's not it. You know what this is? Friends, you and I have to understand two things about what the Apostle Paul is going through here. First of all, we have to understand why it is that he felt this way. And second, you and I have to understand how it is that this motivated him. Why did he feel this way? Is Paul just bitter? Is Paul angry? Is Paul unable to control his wrath? Or is there something more going on here? Friends, what he is describing, what Luke is describing for us, is what we would call righteous indignation. It is a godly jealousy. Is there such a thing as godly jealousy? Is it possible to be jealous in a godly way? Is it possible to be angry, in a righteous way? And how do I know if I'm righteous, angry for the righteous reasons instead of for unrighteous reasons? See friends, jealousy in and of itself is not sin. God says, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall worship no other gods because I, the Lord, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. But what is God jealous for? His honor. His glory. His name, His reputation. Now if I'm jealous for my possessions, or if I'm jealous for somebody else's reputation, or somebody else's possessions, or somebody else's job, or somebody else's wife, or somebody else's uh, wealth, if I'm jealous for any of those things, that is an ungodly, unrighteous jealousy because the motive behind it is glory of self. But the Apostle Paul is not jealous in that sense. He's jealous in the sense that he speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I have betrothed you to Christ and I want to present you to Him as a virgin without spot or blemish. That's the idea. Paul was jealous. Paul was angry because he was was jealous for God's name and God's glory and God's honor. He wasn't jealous and he wasn't angry because of of anything that was against him. It wasn't his name or his glory that he was after. But as Paul walked through the marketplace, as he walked through Athens, what did he see? He saw men refusing to give God glory. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like man and four-footed beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. And they bowed down and gave all of their adoration and praise and glory that belonged to God and God alone. They gave that to an image, to an icon, and to an idol. And as Paul saw that, he was provoked. There was this stirring deep in his soul that motivated him. The heart of idolatry, friends, is the refusal to give God glory. Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because everything about God is known to them. They see His eternal power, His Godhead in the things that are made and they are without excuse. And God is just in condemning them because they see His eternal nature in creation and they take the truth about God and they suppress it in their unrighteousness. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, They did not honor God nor give Him thanks. That's idolatry. They refuse to honor God. The atheist refuses to honor God. The agnostic refuses to honor God. Instead, they set up in their hearts and in their minds and in their lives idols. Things that they give honor and glory and adoration to that belong to God and God alone. And the Apostle Paul saw that God was not being honored and it provoked him. He was stirred in his spirit, not when he saw their lostness, not when he saw the city, not when he got to meet the people. It was the idolatry that stirred in him this righteous anger because the Apostle Paul wanted to see to it that God was honored above all things, preeminent in his mind, preeminent in his heart, preeminent in his life, is the honor and the glory of God. And God was not being honored. And Paul was provoked. Friends, the end of, what, what is the goal of creation? It is to give God glory. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. You are worthy, Lord, to receive all glory. Why? Because you've created all things. The heavens are telling the what? The glory of God in the firmament shows His handiwork. Day after day they pour forth speech and night after night they reveal knowledge. It's for the glory of God. The end for which God created the world was His own glory. The end of our salvation is the glory of God. Romans chapter 11, after 11 chapters of talking about the salvation that is ours in Christ, the Apostle Paul says this, Oh, the depths, both of the riches and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways! For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory. That's our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, three times, To the praise of His glorious grace. The goal of our cre- of creation is the glory of God. The goal of our salvation is the glory of God. And to refuse to give him glory is insurrection against heaven. And the apostle Paul was zealous for the glory of God. He walked into the city. He saw all of these people in darkness who were bowing down and giving the honor and glory and adoration that should belong to God, giving them to beasts and to animals and to icons and to idols and to images. And it provoked him. Friends, does it provoke you? Are you that jealous, that zealous, and that committed to the glory of God, that when you see people who refuse to give God glory, that it angers you? Do you get from time to time so vexed in your spirit so stirred up in your soul over the latest fads and things that come into the churches in our country that elevate man to the center stage in the pulpit and give man all of the glory and all of the credit and God exists as some cosmic bellhop to meet all of our needs, does that provoke you? Does it provoke you when you see your neighbors and your friends and your relatives and people who don't know the Lord and even some Christians worshiping their idols of convenience and comfort, pleasure, Peace and prosperity. Does that provoke you? Does it provoke you when people who name the name of Christ but do not take the Lord and His Word seriously? Does that provoke you? If it doesn't, my friends, then one of two things is wrong. Number one, either you're not very observant and you just don't see it going on around you. Or number two, you really do not have a passion for God's glory. The Apostle Paul was provoked. Why? Because praise and honor which belong to his God was being given to idols. And that stirred up something in him that motivated him to do something. That's what the Apostle Paul felt. Now I want you to notice how this motivated him. Look what Luke says in chapter 17, verse 7. So, that is to say, for this reason, because he was provoked, he was in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. You notice the two-pronged approach now, we haven't seen this yet in the book of Acts, have we? Up until now, Paul would go into the synagogue, wait till he was rejected in the synagogue, then he would turn to the Gentiles. But here the Apostle Paul does something different. On the weekends, he is at the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews from the Scriptures. And during the week, he is someplace else. He is down in the marketplace, and he is debating, and he is discussing, and he is, he is articulating his Gospel to anybody who is present, and anybody who would give him a soapbox and give him an ear. And remember, that's a lot of people. Because everybody in Athens used to do what? Sit around and hear or tell some new thing. All kinds of people sitting around the marketplace. And Paul went down there and he started to articulate the gospel with them and to share Christ with them. And I think he used some of the tactics that we're going to see later on in his message in Acts chapter 17. When he preaches before the Areopagus. Notice something that is key here friends. I want you to pay attention to this and listen carefully. The Apostle Paul was motivated to go into the synagogues and to go into the marketplace and to evangelize by what? His passion for God's glory. Listen carefully. He went into the marketplace. He went out to evangelize. Why? Because he was provoked in his spirit, stirred in his soul that God was not being glorified. And he was so provoked over the lack of glory being given to God that he said, I'll fix this. Well, how do you fix it? You go out and you share the truth with idolaters so that they will turn from idols to serve the living and true God and give Him glory. We hear a lot of talk in our countries, in Christian radio and in books, that the reason we don't share Christ, the reason we don't evangelize, and the reason that Christians don't witness and lead other people to Christ is because we really don't have a passion for lost souls. We really just don't have a love for the lost to save them from fire. (laughs) I don't think that's the problem. You know what I think the problem is? We really don't have a passion for God's glory. We really do not have a passion for God's glory. What you're seeing here is what motivated Paul, so passionate, so hungry for the glory of God, to see God glorified and God honored in everything. That when it wasn't happening, he just said, I can't take it any longer. I'm not waiting for Silas. I'm not waiting for Timothy. And he went into the marketplace and he started to evangelize because he was passionate for God's glory. It wasn't compassion for the lost that drove him. It wasn't a hunger for souls. It wasn't a desire to plant a church there. Paul said to himself, God's not being honored here. And there's one way of making sure that God is honored, and that is to turn idolaters into worshipers of the true God so that those who once refused to give Him glory will now turn around and honor Him and glorify Him as creator and as redeemer. That was His motive. Friends, I ask you, what is your motive for the things that you do as a Christian? What is your motive for worship? Do you come here to see people display their gifts? Do you come here on Sunday morning to exchange recipes and hear some of those old familiar songs sung again to meet old friends and to see new people? Do you come here because you have a desire to express your feelings to God? Or do you come here because you are motivated to give God glory by singing and praising and worshiping Him as Creator and Redeemer? Why do you worship? Why do you serve? Do you serve because all your friends are there? Do you serve because it's convenient? Do you serve because you enjoy it? Do you serve because you want to give something back to God? Or do you serve because God is glorified in the manifestation of His grace through your giftedness? That's the motive for service. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Let him who preaches, preaches the oracles of God. Let him who serves do so with the strength that God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 4.11 The motive for service is the glory of God. Why do you pray? Do you pray for others so that they have an easier life? Or do you pray for yourself so that you have an easier life? Or do you pray that God's glory would be manifested and that He would be honored in granting the things that you request? And are you motivated in prayer by a passion and a drive to see God honored and glorified? Hallowed be Thy name. First request. That's what we want, is to see God honored and to see God glorified. Now friends, here's the biggie. Why do you evangelize? Why should you evangelize? I am convinced that the highest, the primary, the main motivation for evangelism ought to be the glory of God. It ought to be the glory of God. Because God is glorified in the salvation of a sinner, is He not? His love, His mercy, His grace his compassion, His loving kindness, His truth, His justice, His righteousness, all of that is on full display when a sinner is saved. And so when we evangelize, we do so not because we want to save sinners who deserve judgment from judgment, we do so because we want to see God honored and glorified in the salvation of a sinner, and our motivation Our drive should be, Lord, we want to see you glorified. And you are most glorified when you declare righteous the believing sinner on the basis of faith. And friends, when you and I pray for the salvation of somebody, we ought to pray for their salvation, not that it might be an end in itself, but that it might be the means to the end for which God created all things. Namely, His glory. It is all to the praise of His glorious grace. Paul was provoked. And he went out and he ministered the cross. He ministered the gospel because he had a desire to see God honored. Friends, our gospel turns idolaters who refuse to give God glory into worshipers of the one true God who will then honor Him as Redeemer and Creator and Savior. Now you ask, Jim, what is a seed picker? the, The bulletin says that the title of the message is Philosophers versus the Seed Picker. What is a seed picker? We didn't get to that, but we're going to find out what a seed picker is next week. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we are grateful for all that You give to us in Christ and for this Word which challenges us to keep preeminent in our minds, in our hearts, in our thoughts, and in our motivations Your glory. The end for which you have created the world is your own glory. The reason that you do all things is for your own glory. And the end for which you have saved us is all to the praise of your glorious grace. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to analyze and evaluate our motives for service, our desires to evangelism, and our entire life in light of and in terms of your glory and how hungry we are for that and for that alone. Make us people who give honor and glory to you and to you alone. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org.